You're listening to season one of Teaching Yoga, a podcast by me, Cora Giroux. I believe yoga teachers are on the front line of health and healing in the Western world, so I created this podcast to support the people that support the people. Each week, we cover topics that matter to you, like inclusivity, accessibility, and diversity, how to make a sustainable living doing this work, and how we as teachers can be a positive voice in the changing landscape of yoga. This show is a space for real, raw conversation, a place to remind you that you're not alone, and a resource for your life and work on the spiritual path. If you want to stay connected between shows, find me on Instagram. It's just my name, C-O-R-A-G-E-R-O-U-X. I on today's show, I speak with Norman Blair. Norman is an author, a yoga teacher, and an advocate for yoga teacher rights. He currently lives and teaches in the UK, and while Norman has been teaching since the early 1990s, I first became familiar with his work when he published two viral articles in early 2019 called Let's Talk About Yoga Teachers and Pay. Since then, Norman has become a trusted voice on yoga teachers' rights and has recently been quoted in a Yoga Journal article on the future of yoga. Now, before all of this, Norman was a well-established yoga teacher and teacher trainer and an author and has been doing incredible work in the yoga community for years. But these articles, um, at least for me, really started to move his work in a direction that we will get into on this podcast. So I was absolutely thrilled to speak with Norman. He is an incredibly warm and engaging human being. Um, and I feel that, you know, in the future, we will go on to be friends. I can definitely see that if I ever get over to the UK, then I will definitely pay him a visit. Um, but anyway, on this episode, we discuss how yoga teachers get better over time and the importance of keeping senior teachers in the game. We talk about using privilege as a teacher to uplift others, how yoga teachers can move towards sustainability in their teaching career, why some large companies are getting rich off of yoga while yoga teachers are often struggling to make ends meet. We also talk about how to navigate the fine line between serving the community without undercutting other teachers online. We discuss being intentional with how we show up online and what the physical distancing procedures will mean for studios once they reopen. We talk about creating collaborative studio and training models that um, hopefully would bring more equity to the yoga industry. We discuss organizing yoga teacher unions via people who work in the gig economy, i.e. that's most of us. If you're an independent contractor as a yoga teacher, um, welcome to the gig economy if you didn't know you were um, in it. And finally, we talk about the importance of mentoring and supervision and therapy for yoga teachers and how that we need to start breaking the taboo about speaking on yoga and money. I absolutely loved this conversation with Norman, and I hope you do as well. And just a reminder that every single month, I'm giving away a one-on-one -on -one consulting session with me um, to one of you, the podcast listeners, who leave a review for the show. To enter into that, all you need to do is leave a review on iTunes, take a screenshot, and send that to TL at support at coragiru.com. So support at coragiru.com. Just send your screenshot. Make sure you also subscribe to the show. 
Um, and I've been loving doing these one-on-ones. They have been great. We announced them on the first episode of the month, um, announced the winner rather on the first episode of the month. Um, yeah. And I just really hope you enjoy this episode with Norman. Hey, Norman, thank you so much for coming to the show today. You're welcome. Um, we've had like a pretty good lively chat before we officially started recording, um, which you know I think is, is valuable in itself. But before we get into some of the, the meat of the conversation that we're about to have today, I would just love to know from you how you got interested in like teacher yoga teachers rights um in the industry that we are in like you know most of us got into yoga because we have a passion for yoga and then somewhere along the line we start to think about maybe if we're teaching how does this work as a a business or as a career um and then you know for myself i know when i started seeing um some unsavory things happen to myself and my friends who were yoga teachers i started to be like hey wait a minute is this normal? Is this okay? Um, and I'm just wondering, like, how did you start to actually get interested in this? So predating my passion for yoga and meditation has been a long-term involvement in radical politics. So the words of, say, solidarity, the words of mutual aid, the words of supporting each other have been present for me for, for decades. So bringing that into the the yoga world, which is obviously in many ways much more individualistic. And then in terms of my own kind of yoga teaching, so I started teaching in uh, 2001. And I started running uh, training courses uh, in 2013. And what I was increasingly hearing from the training courses were the challenges that many teachers were facing and what came up again and again is around sustainability and what i feel is the potential for us as teachers is that we can get better and better over time so run say a professional footballer where they have to retire at 35 because their knees are wrecked you know as teachers we can get better and better because you simply can't train experience you know when we're training people we can give people suggestions we can point out things that can happen but over time there's that kind of real grounding that comes from our experience as teachers and as our experience as practitioners but if people aren't able to sustain themselves if if they're burning out because they're putting so much pressure on themselves I would I regularly meet people or met pre-pandemic met teachers who were teaching 15 or 20 classes a week and they were saying you know this is I'm really struggling I'm really struggling I'm losing connection with my practice I'm straining to pay the bills it's it's too much and like particularly in a big city like London so much time spent commuting so I suppose what it was coming down to because personally I do well in teaching yoga. I've been teaching yoga for a long time. I was lucky in the time that I did start teaching that I remember when I did start teaching, if you drew an equation on the kind of low end were the teachers and on the high end were classes. And what's happened over the the 15, 20 years is that equation has shifted. So now there's a lot of teachers and not so many classes being available. So personally, I've done well, and in, I, I wrote an article in uh, February of this year, and it was funny because this was potentially the, the kind of the hardest article I've had to write, and uh, my partner, she edits all my work, and this article mm. caused quite a lot of friction between us. And now it's completely outdated. <laughs> we spent literally days and weeks working on this article, and then bang, along comes coronavirus, and this article becomes outdated. But what I said in this article, I said how much I earned. So that's quite, you know, for me, I feel quite exposed. I also said how much I pay other people. And I was saying this because I want to make it clear that I'm doing well, but a lot of people are not. Mm -hmm. And in a way, as much as privilege is a protection for a pandemic, so you've got wealthy people who have like fled the city. 
and they're holed up in their kind of second homes in the countryside. And at the same time, you know, in London, you know, a lot of poorer people have died. So I wanted to use my privilege of doing well in yoga to give a voice to people who perhaps were unable to speak up because they were scared of rocking the boat. And, yeah. you know, what I'm really interested in is sustainability of yoga teachers. What I'm really interested in is sustainability of ourselves as practitioners. So as a, as a simple example of that, the amount of Ashtanga I do, so Ashtanga is my, was my first practice, but has definitely declined over the years. Mm. So I do much less Ashtanga and much more kind of softer stuff. And also sustainability of environment, of society. Mm. And it's like, what are we doing with our lives? And I, I do feel that, you know, so politically I'm involved in a group in the UK that's also got... Um, branches around the world called Extinction Rebellion. And it's like, what are we doing? What are we doing? <laughs> Into, you know, there was, and there were all the, the fires in Australia. And I kind of think, mm -hmm. you know, there were fires in Australia. We had floods in the UK. There have been locust plagues. And now we've got a pandemic. <laughs> it's like, what are we doing with our lives? You know, we need to kind of wake up. You know, how many pointless plane journeys do we have to make? You know, the, the absurdity of the fact that it's substantially, or was, not now probably, but pre-pandemic, it was substantially more expensive to travel by train from London to Berlin than to mm. fly. What are we doing? And, I, you know, so there are many different, different levels, Cora, that we can be asking these kind of questions. So I first wrote um, publicly about, yoga teachers pay in January 19, uh, 2019. And I was pushed into it by other teachers who were saying to me, we're really struggling. Teacher, not that this isn't like newbie teachers. These are teachers who have been teaching for like 10 or 15 years. We're mm -hmm. really struggling. It's hard. Yeah, I, um, I can relate to a lot of that. I, you know, the first couple of years that I taught, I was teaching... 15 or 20 classes a week um, and barely paying my rent. I moved into a cheaper apartment. I was trying to like pay my student loans because I had a, I just graduated university. Um, and yeah, and, and have had, had multiple occasions in my, you know, just over a decade of teaching where I suffered from burnout because I was trying to work just as much as I could to just, you know, Sydney's a really expensive city as well. And I was living in Vancouver before that. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of expense just to live a pretty modest lifestyle here. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and as you say, like, I didn't want to stop teaching, but I was considering like, what are my other options here? Because it doesn't seem like a sustainable path. Like, I don't know if I want to be doing like, and I was in my twenties when I started teaching. Um, it's like, I don't know if I want to keep doing that when I'm 40 or 50 or, you know, and, um, and it's a huge thing that I hear. I was for a time or for a couple of years leading yoga teacher trainings as well. And it was a huge thing because we, st I stayed connected with most of the people that went through the course and tried to get them job opportunities and, you know, you know, continually trying to mentor people if they were interested in that. And it was not easy, um, you know, to, to work as a teacher. Yet my thing is that you know, we have to make it sustainable, kind of like what you were saying, or we're not going to have teachers that are getting better with age. Like we're not going to have senior teachers. People will burn out and leave the industry, which I've witnessed lots of friends doing. You know, I have a, a very talented friend who, or yoga teacher friend who'd been teaching for 15 years and then just said, fuck it. I just can't do this anymore. She wanted to have a baby. And um, she's like, there's no way that I can have a family and, and be a yoga teacher. So she She's very happy now. She got a job as an art art curator, art director. That's her other passion and working Monday to Friday, nine to five and and is enjoying, you know, contributing to her household. <laughs> um, yeah, so 
I, I feel you about things, you know, writing that article and now it being kind of out, outdated because of the pandemic. <laughs> and, yes. and we have a whole new set of issues going on with everybody moving online. And one of the things that I was seeing really early on, which there's always two sides to the story and always two ways to think about it, were people offering a lot of free yoga online, um, you know, Instagram lives and free Zoom classes and everything by donation and the price of classes going down dramatically for students. I don't know if you're experiencing that in the UK either. Yes. Um, and then other teachers because they're paying their rent through teaching, we're like, I can't give away my stuff for free because this is my only source of income and I don't have a backup. And, and them feeling really um, conflicted about, you know, other teachers offering stuff for free or studios giving things away for free. And I, I know this has sort of like happened with devaluing yoga with like things like Groupon and ClassPass coming into mm. the studio system maybe like 10 years ago. I don't know exactly when, but... Something like that, yeah. Yeah, do you have any thoughts on like the online world and if things are getting devalued <laughs> and how we, how we think about that? You know, th there's been a, a definite uh, devaluing over a period of time and there's also been the rise of what I describe as the, the kind of the, the parasites, which is someone like um, Class Pass. Also, uh, things like Mind Body Online. And uh, do you have that in Australia? We do, yeah. And we had it yeah. in Canada as well when I was living and teaching there. I think it's kind of worldwide. So I know, I know with Mind Body Online, uh, one studio told me um, a few months ago that their charges, what Mind Body Online was charging them, had increased by something like a third over maybe five years at most. So substantial increase in their charges at the same time as yoga teachers pay staying the same. So that's what, you know, these kind of, and the same with ClassPass that uh, just before the pandemic, they proudly announced that they'd become the first uh, billion dollar corporation of the, uh, the new decade. And then yeah, uh, God, knows what, <laughs> yeah, God knows what's happening now. And uh, I saw Mind Body Online was valued at something like 1.9 billion in 2019, I think. So, you know, they're making huge profits. They're making a lot of money. I don't know what they're doing now, but certainly pre-pandemic, they were doing very well. In terms of free content online, I, you know, what I would say is I think people need to be really careful. And I know a studio in London where they made the transition very quickly and very successfully, skillfully, from being a physical classes to running an online timetable. And then, so this would have been like mid-March, and then they were, about a month or two later, they were like, we set the membership fees too low. And it's a challenge to put prices up for people. You know, people get familiar with things that are free. People get familiar with, like, say, membership fees that are fairly low. So I, I do, I would really encourage people to be careful about what they're doing. And yet at the same time, myself and my partner, we're running two free online classes for um, participants who have done trainings with us. So we're running them on Mondays and Thursdays. So it's restricted to just people mm -hmm. who've done trainings with us. And we, so we, our studio here is called Zolder, which is a Dutch word and it means, you know, kind of loft which it is it's a loft but it's also about um has meanings like say moving towards the light so we called it you know it's our gift to the zolder yin community and i think this is it's also about how do we support each other like there are quite a lot of studios in the uk that are running free classes for people who are working on the hair healthcare front lines so that's, you know, it's not, it's not just a kind of black and white picture. And I think, you know, this is, you know, there are many different shades to the situation. But there are people who are dependent on receiving payment as a way of paying their bills, as a way of paying their rent, who are perhaps not being able to do that because there is so much free content online. But this free content online isn't a new thing. Mm -hmm. You know, what's, what's that? Is it Yoga with Adrian? Yeah, something like that. I've never actually watched it, but you know, there's been a lot of content available through channels like YouTube, 
So it's not new, but it, I think it's definitely increased in the last, what's it, three months. Yeah, so I, it's I being say, intentional. Yeah, I, w- I would just say, you know, be careful about what you're doing. Try and think through, and I know, you know, we're in a pandemic. <laughs> you know, this is, and Cora, I love making plans. It's one of my mm. great joys in life. And, you know, I was, I'd literally... I was planning out, I'd got to the, like, you know, the beginning of this year, I was planning like autumn 2021. You know, I kind of justify my obsessive planning on the basis that I work with a lot of other people. Mm-hmm. So on my trainings, you know, other teachers come in. So I kind of think I've got to plan ahead because I want to make sure that they're committed to the trainings. And then suddenly the pandemic hits <laughs> and it's like my lovingly constructed plans are broken in pieces on the floor and there's nothing I can do about it. So I suppose in a way it's coming back to one of the powers to me of practice is let's pause. Can we think through the repercussions of what we're doing? As much as, you know, again, this comes back to sustainability. And I, I do think people are going to remember which studios have stood up and which studios have not been so supportive. And it's about how can we, you know, and we'll definitely, you know, we'll come out of this pandemic. You know, it'll definitely change. You know, I, I consume a lot of information about the pandemic and I experience a lot of confusion and uncertainty, as I'm sure is true for many other people. And I really do not know what's going to happen. You know, people, you know, it's not like there is one science. There are many scientists. There are many different opinions. And maybe, maybe in a few months' time, we're coming back fairly quickly into something similar to what was happening. But I have seen people saying that if we're going to practice physical distancing in a yoga class, that will reduce the numbers to about 20%, 25% maybe, of what there was pre-pandemic. So as an example, where I used to practice Ashtanga is a fairly small studio, Ashtanga Yoga London, which to give them a plug, when the um, pandemic hit and studios closed in London, which is around about mid-March, they closed down and they committed to paying their assistants, so those are people who assist, mm-hmm. assist in the class, two months. So people receive pay for two months from wow. mid-March. And I think this just needs to be congratulated. This needs to be advertised as much as there was a teacher in Sweden who wrote to me and she said when her studio closed down, they paid teachers for the two weeks from closure. I think this, mm. is, I think this is amazing. This is people standing up and saying, yes, we're taking a hit, but we're going to do our best to support you. Yeah, and and those are the kinds of places that I think teachers will be um, happy to support as well. Like exactly. the support, go, the support goes both ways, and that's what I found is that if you, I mean, it sounds so cliche, but for the most part, if you're good to people, people are good back to you, and it's not, um, it's not always certain <laughs> that that'll go that of way. Course. But it's, I mean, it's it's about I think like doing what you can, and then. Yes. You know, it, yeah, it's, it's just, it's coming from a different framework, I guess, of being like um, collaborative and supportive of each other. And you can actually do a lot more, I find that way. <laughs> exactly. So one of the things that in these trainings that my partner and myself run, I call them multi-teacher model. So this is actually an expression I got from another teacher um, in Brighton called Mark Walsh. And he came along on a train and he said, oh, this is a, a multi-teacher model. So rather than one person standing there day after day after day and inevitably being put up on a pedestal, and of course we all fall off pedestals, but having other teachers come in, coming in as a way of well, spreading the work, lessening the pressure, and encouraging participants to realize that there are different ways of doing things. So it's like, oh, it doesn't, you know, the last thing I want someone to do, if they come on a yin yoga training with me, is to walk away thinking, oh, I have to do it like Norman does it. Mm -hmm. You know, I want to, 
this is about empowering people. And this is something I've been talking about a lot in the last maybe six months, a year, which has also come, also come out of all the, the horror stories around adjustments and uh, abusive practices within yoga is about autonomy of practitioner. Mm. The most important person in a studio is a practitioner. And I am merely a teacher who has some experience of teaching and of practicing. And I want you as a practitioner to be empowered to say no. And then in terms of my own teaching, so clearly I'm not doing this on Zoom, but <laughs> pre-Zoom, pre-pandemic, the way I dealt with it was I would give people playing cards. Because sometimes it can be that challenge of verbally saying no. So I want to encourage you to say no without having to go into a discussion with me. So I'd give people a playing card and face down says no, face up. So no, I do not want any adjustments. No, I do not want any advice from you. Face up says yes. So autonomy and empowerment of practitioners, what is like consent, practitioner and consent is so important. And then taking this into our relationship as teachers with studios that so with the life center pre-pandemic they just set up a teachers council so i think this is a great mm -hmm. idea and the the teachers on the council are being paid for being there so it's not just turning up because we like the life center we're actually being paid for being part of the teachers council i'm interested in things like employee owned structures i'm interested mm -hmm. in things like maybe co-ops. I'm interested in what you talked about of like collaborating together, which is coming back to the model, this multi-teacher model, using it as a way of bouncing ideas around, getting ourselves off the pedestal, being human. Yeah. In the, um, in the trainings that I was running, um, I used a multi-teacher model as well. And, and to, right. be, to be transparent, it was because I got thrust into a situation where I was leading teacher trainings um, after having been a teacher for six years. And there, I did not feel prepared to do that. Um, but I said, I can, but I can organize people. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I just, I hired um, people who knew what they were doing. And then, uh, and then I stuck with that model, even as I learned and grew more as a teacher, because it was more sustainable for me. Um, it, as exactly as you said, it um, created a broader lens for the students, um, and they got people who were really good at what they did in a particular area um, to teach what they were most passionate about. So, I mean, I really like that as well. And and you know some. Sometimes collaborations, like I was part of a, a studio that had a couple of different owners and I was one of them and, and the collaboration didn't go too well. But I yes. think, I think that there could, in hindsight, I think that there could have, that could have been avoided with a lot of um, discussion upfront before we got into a business partnership. But what does the, what does the teachers council actually do? Like that sounds like an interesting concept, especially that a center is paying teachers to be a part of it. So the Life Centre probably maybe has like perhaps, I don't know, maybe 70, 80 teachers, maybe a few more than that. And so it's a way of the encouraging communication between the teachers and the management, the owners. So teachers can talk to, like there's maybe, there was like five or six of us on the teachers council. So we had one physical meeting, then the pandemic, and we've had one meeting um, on Zoom, of course. And uh, it's just a way of encouraging communication, of allowing us as teachers to feed to management, oh, this is what we would like, or could you change it? Or, and management to say also to us, well, you know, this is what is happening. You know, as a, obviously we want to c keep ourselves going, and then what can you do to help us? Just to kind of encourage more of a kind of equitable exchange of ideas. Yeah, that um, that makes a lot of sense, and and it's one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot. Like we spoke about it before we hit record. That I had a chat with Markella from uh, the Yoga Works Union in New York, and the union there was unique because 
the members were employees of Yoga Works and the entire like decade or so that I've been teaching and knowing yoga teachers as friends, the vast majority of us, I don't know what it's like in the UK, but at least in Canada and here in Australia, um, are sole traders or self-employed or independent contractor or whatever you want to yeah. call it. And from what I know, and I'm not like an expert on it, but I have been thinking and researching it quite a bit. As an independent contractor, you can't actually form a union. You can form <laughs> things like guilds or co-ops or those sorts of things. And I'm just wondering, like, is it the same in the UK? And and have you been thinking about this? Like, I know your one of your emails is like union unionize yoga at gmail.com. I don't know if that's your actual email address, yeah. so don't email that if you don't want to, listeners. But um <laughs> <laughs> you know, I know that you're you're thinking about this and interested in it. And have you have you merged those two ideas, like being an independent contractor and unionizing? Yes. Cool. So it's like, it's the gig economy. Do you use that expression yeah, in Australia? Yeah, we do, yeah. So it's the gig economy, which has been, you know, coming back to what I talked about earlier with Uber. Uber is a classic example of the gig economy. Like Uber drivers are independent contractors, they're freelancers, they're self-employed, and but they have a common interest as Uber drivers. So the same with yoga teachers in the UK. I'd say the vast majority are you know, in, the, in that kind of, yeah, self-employed freelancers. But we also have common interests. And maybe this could touch on what you said a little bit earlier about free, free content, that we could be speaking up and saying, hang on, teachers. You know, we're all in similar boats. And, of course, there are differences in our boats, different colors, different, you know, lengths of experience, different practices but we need to be conscious of what we're doing. And we need to avoid, as an example, undercutting each other. So one of the things that we're talking about within the uh, Yoga Teachers Union, and this is borrowing an idea from the National Union of Journalists. And again, you could talk about, you know, some people within the NUJ are in a similar place of being freelancers, yet working for larger organizations. And the NUJ have got a sheet of like, this is how much you, you expect to be paid. So if you write, as an example, a thousand word article, you're paid like 50 pounds or 100 pounds, whatever the figure is. So this is the kind of thing that we're looking towards of saying, if you're teaching an hour long class in a gym in London, you expect to be paid, say, 30 or 35 or 40 pounds an hour. And then if you're teaching a, same, a similar class elsewhere, and you know, obviously there are differing pay rates. But it's like to encourage people to think, well, actually, there are some standards. And you kind of touched on training. I would apply the same, you know, because there are some really wonderful trainings. And you and I have both done the um, training with uh, Bernie Clark, and I'm a, I'm a great fan of mm -hmm. Bernie, and I, I love Bernie and uh, Diana a lot. And I learned a great deal from both of them. And there are some really good trainings out there and there are some not so good trainings. And I think sometimes, sometimes the problem in like yoga land is like we think, oh, everything's okay. Everything's good. And sometimes it's not so good. And it's about um, one of the models that we're looking for, looking at in the uh, Yoga Teachers Union we're setting up in the UK is there's um, a video gamers union. And they have... On their website, they have a channel where people can make anonymous statements about, say, the experiences they've had, say, writing a, a video game for a company or who, who they've been working with. And these are the kind of things. It's like, let's have more of a discussion that then prevents situations like, so, you know, as I said, my background is in Ashtanga, that prevents situations that happened with Patabi Joyce. And what Patabi Joyce did to women over a long period of time is like, let's bring the veils down from the eyes. Let's be clearer about what's happening. Let's have more of a kind of equal participation, whether it's as students with a teacher or whether it's teachers with studios. So I suppose one of the things I'm really keen on is that there's a more let's call it an equitable distribution of resources. So coming back to this idea of the salary cap at the life center, this is what it's about. 
It's a more equitable distribution of resources. I'd rather be paid less and more teachers get work than for mm -hmm. me to be paid loads and other teachers to be really struggling. And let's have more participation. So whether that participation is expressed through the teachers' council, whether it's expressed through, say, an employee-owned studio, whether it's expressed through like a yoga teachers union, let's have more participation. So are you org actually organizing a union in the UK? Is that, ha is that happening? So slowly there are shifts happening and mm -hmm. we now have um, an email list of around cool. about um, 250 people. Cool. So we're now in discussion with a union that specifically organizes gig workers, so gig cool. economy workers. So, you know, these words, Cora, the use of like, say, union, guild, mm. Mm. you know, this, I, I, I would just want to, I want to talk about more of a collective voice. And in a more collective voice, giving ourselves confidence to stand up. You know, I had a teacher who's been teaching for decades. You know, we're talking like pre 21st century. And she's taught for a long time in the kind of larger studios. And she said to me, it's like, you know, it's like being a serf in a feudal economy. <laughs> you know, this is, you know, we need to kind of, I want to say, take back some of the power. And at the same mm -hmm. time of saying this, Cora, I really do not know what's going to happen in the next year or two. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm seriously worried about some of the things that are happening. And, you know, there are definitely potentials for the dystopian future in terms of, you know, increased surveillance, in terms of increased mm -hmm. state power, in terms of like the corporates getting even stronger. And, you know, there are going to be some big battles ahead. And I think one of the ways that we can prepare ourselves for these big battles is now. So having these kinds of discussions, thinking about, you know, congratulating the positive models, you know, I kind of mentioned Down Under, I've mentioned East of Eden, I've mentioned Mashallah, congratulating the positive models and then thinking about well, what might the future look like? You know, how could we together start shifting things in a more positive direction? Yeah, it, it's um, something that I've been thinking about a lot lately and trying to gather different people's perspectives on how they think that the yoga industry, if we want to call it that, will evolve um, as a result of the pandemic. One of the podcast guests, she didn't say this on the podcast, but she said it on an Instagram IGTV video, um, that she thinks that the studios that actually survive will be the ones that actually shift their value proposition towards teachers and giving them a reason to be associated with a particular studio. Um, versus having perhaps their value proposition before on the student. Um, it was Nicole Cardoza. I just don't think I mentioned her name. And, um, and I thought that was an interesting thing because from what I've heard, and I'm sure you've heard the same thing, like I, I had a, I run a little mentoring group for yoga teachers called the oh. teachers, teachers club. It's what, it's Me what too. I, yeah, fun. it's what I do. Um, after I left the studio and couldn't actually teach. So I shifted to mentoring yoga teachers I and one mentoring. of, yeah, it's the best. It's actually yeah. my favorite. Um, I will go back to teaching when I can, but, um, but that's what I'm doing for now. And I had a, just a, a private, like one-on-one -on -one zoom call with one of the, the members. And she said, I just taught this class for a studio, which hasn't been treating her well, and she's had problems with them before, and it wasn't a great situation to begin with. But she's like, but I made $30 teaching it for them. And then I taught my own yin class on Sunday night, and I made $200. Um, huh. And then it was very clear to her, she's like, I'm going to let my class go with that studio. And she's like, it was something that she had wanted to do before the pandemic hit, but now she had like this real clear experience of, you know, being self-sufficient, I guess, in, in yeah. some way. So I think teachers are getting that. They're getting an experience of like, hey, wait, the studios, maybe I don't need to be associated with a studio to, to reach students. 
So Nicole kind of thought that studios are going to have to be come attractive to get teachers. But then I've heard other people say like, well, there's just, you know, there are going to be fewer classes, fewer studios. So there'll be less opportunity in general. Do you have any thoughts on like what way that's going to sort of play out? I think the, <laughs> the only answer is I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I think there are definitely going to be, I think there are going to be a few teachers. Let's come back to the 1% idea. There are going to be a few teachers who can do incredibly well, who will be will continue to. I think Zoom online teaching is here to stay. And pre-pandemic, I was I'd had people ask me about teaching online, and I always refused. And you know, I have a real kind of aversion to technology, and now I've embraced Zoom. So I think uh, teaching um, online and teaching via Zoom is here to stay. I think that. Um, a few teachers are going to do really well out of it. I think, I think we just need to try our best to make things work as well as possible for everyone. And what I feel is in the past that some studios have been fixated on, say, uh, students and owners, and the teachers have been marginalized. And you know, there are different explanations for this. One of the explanations for this is the huge boom in yoga teacher training. So, as I said earlier, you know, when I started teaching in 2001, there weren't that many teachers and a lot of classes. And then what happened over time was that the number of teachers exponentially increased, like a pandemic, and the number of classes then got fewer and fewer, the number of classes being available. So I think that one of the reasons behind the rise in teacher training, so all these issues are linked. One of the reasons behind the rise in teacher trainings is the poor pay in classes. So someone like you said yourself, you know, you're teaching and the poor rates of pay, then you think, well, I could run a training because the pay is better. So then trainings are run, and I've been running loads of training. So, you know, I'm as much responsible for this as anyone else. The trainings are run, and more people think, oh, I'm now a yoga teacher, I'll go out and teach a class, which then allows the studios to keep the pay rates low because there's a whole the supply and demand situation. So I think, you know, there, there are lots of issues going on, and, you know, and some days I'm really optimistic, Mm -hmm. Some days I'm really pessimistic and I, I don't know. I, I just think we need, to, we need to be active and we need to recognize that there are many obstacles. We need to also recognize that we do have power. And, you know, this is one of the things I've really found in the um, pandemic teaching, like the Zoom teaching is that my partner and myself have received so much positive feedback from people are saying these classes, so I mentioned earlier these free classes that mm -hmm. we've been running for what we call the Zolder Yin community, people have said these have been so helpful. These have really been literally a lifeline. And I think sometimes as yoga teachers, as much as we talked about devaluing yoga teaching, I think sometimes as yoga teachers, we actually undervalue the influence we might have on people's lives. And then at the same time as undervaluing the influence we might have on people's lives, you know, really, to be honest, Cora, what is a 200-hour training? It is absolutely nothing. Mm -hmm. It's like a fraction. And, you know, it's like we have these 200-hour trainings and then we don't have any mentoring. I personally think every yoga teacher needs supervision. I see a supervisor. Mm -hmm. I think mentoring is so important to give people space to say, well, someone came up to me at the end of the class and they said, I'm feeling really depressed. What do you suggest? And you're thinking, I've only had a 200-hour training. How on earth do I know what mm -hmm. to say? But, you know, there's lots and lots of different issues going on. And I think that, you know, I would, even though I have this radical perspective in some ways i think that there needs to be more regulation i think that every yoga teacher and i'm including myself in this needs whether we call it mentoring whether we call it supervision we need to be constantly 
looking at what we're doing. We need to keep updating our skills. People come up to me and said, well, you said 15 years ago, you said <laughs> ABC, and now you're saying XYZ. And I'm like, that was 15 years ago. I've mm -hmm. changed as much as my practice has changed over time. And I do think that the future is uncertain. The future is unknown. And I also think that we have the power to positively change things. So maybe they could be better. But we need to do the work. As much as you know, we're very keen on exercising our hamstrings and we get very like, you think, oh, hip rotation. It's actually, you know, I really believe much more important than hip rotation and exercising hamstrings is community. I think much more important than like how good we might look is how are we relating to self and to what is around us? And there is so much narcissism. There is so much obsession on like how well might I look rather than like what is the community? How well am I connecting to people? And this is one of the great pluses of the pandemic. That certainly in the UK, there's been a flowering of mutual aid. And I know the same is true in North America. That people have, not of course everyone, but a lot of people have realizing what is important. Do I need endless more stuff? Do I need the latest iPhone? Perhaps, and it kind of connects in some ways to yin yoga, perhaps like, you know, that whole cliche, less can be more. And I, I actually wanted to switch gears just a little bit, like on this same vein, basically. But there was a quote that you had in one of your articles. I can't remember which one it was. It was probably one of the ones that came out in January or February of 2019, um, where you said it can almost be considered unyogic to talk about money, but this view is not grounded in reality. Talking about money is part of practicing self-compassion. And as I said, I mentor yoga teachers. Some of them have been teaching for a couple of years. Some have been, are just newer to teaching. And since we're in like a little closed community and, you know, their studio owners or their students aren't going to see what they post in the Facebook group or what they, mm -hmm. you know, email me and ask me about privately. I know that a lot of yoga teachers want to talk about money, um, but they're, uh, concerned, just like you say, that like addressing yoga teaching as a career or a business or the money side of it at all um, almost feels unyogic. And they've even posted in the Facebook group, like one person I remember saying was very conflicted about just receiving any money for oh. teaching. And they're like, I know I need to receive money for it, but I feel weird about it. So then I feel weird about telling students, come to my Zoom class, it's $10, you know? Um, so I was just wondering if, if you had any thoughts or you wanted to elaborate on like your experience of just being open and, and forthright publishing what you earn. Um, I, I was public on one of the unionized yoga, um, Instagram posts where they asked mm -hmm. yoga teachers to post what they earn. And I posted what I earned for the, um, like milestones in my career, like when I was teaching 15 mm. to 20 classes a week, when I started doing teacher training, when I started um, owning a studio, what I earn now, nothing. <laughs> but like, <laughs> you know, I, I posted like the major milestones and how my income changed. Um, but it's a real sort of like taboo topic in our field. And I was just wondering if you, um, for people listening, have any advice on how to reckon with money and yoga together? I suppose one of the things I'd say, first of all, is break the taboo, break the, taboo, break the yeah. silence. Yeah. And let's have a discussion around how much we're paid and encourage, again, this comes back to sustainability because if we're not being paid, then either it's completely uns unsustainable or we're dependent on a wealthy partner. So when in yoga we might talk about um, inclusivity, or making practices available to people. Mm -hmm. But then if in teaching, we're not able to make sure that we're being financially supported by what we're doing, then that means that yoga teaching will be reserved to those who've say got private incomes mm. or those who have, you know, who come from a wealthy background. So this clearly um, isn't fair. Yeah. But, you know, 
it's kind of trying to make teaching more inclusive by having these discussions to say that, okay, this is, you know, again, this comes back to this idea I talked earlier with the uh, Yoga Teachers Union of having a sheet of this is what you can expect to be paid. You know, there's a friend of mine that she was teaching a private in um, uh, South Ken in London. So those of you who know London will know that South Ken, there's a subtext to South Ken. So South Ken is a, is a very wealthy area. And she started uh, teaching this private. And she started teaching her quite soon after she'd qualified as a teacher. And she was, so this is probably about maybe um, 10 years ago. And um, the private, she, she was charging the private 50 pounds for an hour and a quarter. And then she told me that um, sometimes the private would give her a 20 pound tip. I'm like, there's a message in that. It's like, let's value ourselves. And, you know, sometimes some people can afford to pay a lot, you know, in terms of like, you know, some privates are very wealthy. Mm-hmm. So they should be paying what we're, what we're worth as much as on the, on the other side of the coin is about making our practices available to people. I mentioned this earlier, say people working on the healthcare front lines at the moment, you know, and I've, you know, with the trainings that I run that Mighty Pushman, my partner and I run, on every training that we run here at home, so they're limited to 12 people. Obviously, we're not running them at home at the moment, um, but they're limited to 12 people. And of the 12 places, two of them are bursary, which means like 50% of the mm-hmm. um, cost. So it's about, again, it, it's not, you know, there's not a binary situation. It's not a black and white situation. There are many kind of nuances here because we want to make, practice accessible to people we want to encourage people to practice and yet at the same time we want to make sure that we're not devaluing ourselves and you know asking for money this is a common blockage for many people it's not just yoga teachers you know there's that kind of almost that momentary embarrassment where you say you know can i have x (laughs) for the work i've just done but you know i talked about exercising hamstring it's another muscle you know, we can exercise this muscle. And sometimes, like in the mentoring groups, that it's like, actually, look me in the eyes and say, that will be 70 pounds, please. <laughs> but exercise this muscle. Let's kind of get away from the discomfort. And, you know, I feel uncomfortable asking people for money. But it's like, we can slowly, as much as, you know, when I started practicing yoga, I couldn't touch my toes. You know, naturally, mm. I'm fairly energetic. Naturally, I'm fairly strong. So if someone says to me, oh, how do you do um, the press-up posture, Chaturanga Dandasana? I'm like, surely it's easy. Mm. It took me a while to realize for a lot of people it's not easy. But for me, it was a real struggle to touch my toes. And slowly, 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 over time, a long time, you know, I can fold fairly flat forwards. It's the same with looking someone in the eyes and saying, that will be X, please. Yeah, that's such, that's such a good point. And it's actually helped me understand it a little bit better because I've not ever struggled with that. I have not, I don't struggle with asking people for money, but as you mentioned, it's a muscle. And I worked in restaurants and bars for a good Mm. decade where you walk up to someone and say, that's $35 cash or card. And you just like, you you know, you just, you just say the thing and they just pay you and, and you're very used to working with getting tips because I was in Canada when I worked in hospitality for the vast majority. So they tip in Canada Uh and it's like, you're handling money and asking people for money, you know, 30, 40 times a day. So it's just a muscle Mm -hmm. that you build up. And I, I like that exercise when you, um, when you mention, you know, just looking, looking me in the yes. eye and saying that that the my class is done or my private is done, yeah. I'm on to my next appointment. It's seventy dollars. You can pay X, Y, or Z. Um, that's a really good like role playing exercise. Yes. But I do the same thing as you as well, where I I make sure people you know can access things at half price and get mm. scholarships into trainings, mm. and that that makes me feel like. Um, I'm, I'm being generous with what I have because people have been generous with me. Um, and it's just, you know, keeping it, keeping it going, I think. Passing the gift on. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's it's a practice. So much in life is a practice. That's so, that's so enlightening. Thank you. I'm going to take that back to the mentoring group. (laughs) 
<laughs> for other people struggling with it. Um, so have you seen, there's a really great book called The Yoga Teacher's Mentor. No, I haven't seen it. Okay, so I'll give a plug. Can I give a plug for it? Yes, please. So it's by Jess Glennie, and um, she's a London yoga teacher. I'll send you a copy, Cora. Oh, you're amazing. And it's, a, it's a great book. And I think, you know, I have got um, resources on my website about mentoring, and I've written a few articles about mentoring. Mm -hmm. And maybe separate from this discussion, we could compare notes. Definitely. About the mentoring process. But, you know, again, it comes down to if we're more supported, then we're more sustainable. Yeah. You know, so if we, you know, if we can have someone where we can go along and say, like, I'm really confused about what to do. And this other person's got more experience and they can say, well, maybe you could try this. But one of the things I love with the mentoring groups is I see my role more as a facilitator than like at the top of the pile. Mm -hmm. So some of the people in the mentoring groups have been teaching for like many, mm -hmm. many years. So it's not just me. It's that we all chip in. So I limit the size of the mentoring group to five, to five people. Mm, cool. Because I think when it's that small size, we can more develop relationships. Mm -hmm. As much as the trainings that uh, my partner and I do here, we limit to 12 people. I'm really into working with small groups. And mm -hmm. I think when we're working with a small group, there can be more sense of intimacy. And it's kind of because I do teach larger groups. And it's funny because I just assume that everyone would like working with small groups. And I remember <laughs> talking to someone about this and she was like, no. I want to be anonymous. <laughs> I want to skulk in the corner. Do not want, because when you're in a group of like five or 12, you cannot be anonymous. Everyone yeah. is seeing each other. But um, yeah, I think support is essential. Yeah, that's, um, that's so important. I remember um, Sarah Powers mentioning, I can't remember if it was an interview or on a training that I did with her, but that every yoga teacher should have a therapist and every yoga yes. teacher should have a mentor. And I... Yeah. I, I had a therapist that I referred people to, like students or people in teacher trainings or whoever, if they needed to talk to someone. And I was like, well, shit, I'm not actually <laughs> going. <laughs> and then I started, and then I started to see my therapist really regularly, as regularly as I could afford. And it was um, life-changing as a teacher. Yeah. Uh, so I can't recommend that enough. And um, I don't currently have a mentor right now, but there, most of the time, I work with a mentor as well because, you know, it's I, such I an highly, incredible way to learn. I highly recommend psychotherapy. So I was in psychotherapy for probably about 12 years, 15 years. And then my last, so I had three different psychotherapists and my last psychotherapist has morphed into being my supervisor. Oh, cool. But, but I think, you know, one of the things also to be clear with psychotherapy is there are some terrible psychotherapists out there. Yep. As much as there are some yep. not very good yoga teachers out there. And it's also about the individual relationship because I know people have come along to my class and they've said, I'm never going to go to his class again. He talks too much or mm -hmm. he's too political. Mm -hmm. and that's fine because enough people come along that makes it worthwhile for me. But um, again, it comes back to this idea of support. And I do think as a mentor, we need to be supported. Because mm -hmm. I remember when I was one of the groups I was running and I was having this conflict with a person in the group and my feeling was about inclusivity. And then I went to see my supervisor and she was like, no, get rid of that person. <laughs> because what's happening is you're ending up fighting with that person and you're neglecting the other four people in the group. Yeah. And it was brilliant because she was like the sword of truth. And because I had this, sense of wanting to include but actually in that I was neglecting the other people I had um, the exact same situation happen although at that time I did not have a mentor and the person was in the group for um, the six the entire six months and it it wasn't a good thing for the other people because exactly. I, I was distracted um, constantly. And I know now that I would have made a different decision and I would have asked the person to, um, to, to think about joining maybe at another time if it was, or just, it might not been the, the right fit. Um, we'll do one to one. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, Norman, I just want to be respectful of your time because I've basically taken up your whole morning. Um, I'm, I'm okay. If, I'm happy with whatever. And I'm also aware that sometimes people, 
you know, people's own attention spans, whatever works well for you, Cora. Cool. Well, I, I have two more questions that I'd like to ask, but I think they're, sure. they're a bit more fluffy, so they probably won't take too long. <laughs> they probably won't take too long. The first one is just, some people love this question. Most people hate it, but we'll just see how it goes. Um, could you finish this sentence? If you really knew me, you would know. So I, I thought about this beforehand hmm. because I read it and I thought, oh, God. Um, <laughs> so I thought about it beforehand. And then kind of what came up for me was um, I can be scared and shy as well as strong. Hmm. So just coming back to psychotherapy, I forgot to mention, I'm actually involved in a men's therapy group with called, uh, and they've got a kind of international um, called Mankind Project. And, uh, I've we heard of them. Yes. Mm. Some people like them, some people are not so keen on them. But I think as a, as a man in a yoga teaching world, I would highly recommend all male yoga teachers to be in a men's therapy group cool. um, for various <laughs> reasons. But, um, and we have these kind of mission statements. And uh, my mission statement, which I came across maybe about two or three years ago and still feels very apt for me is um, I see clearly and stand cleanly in my power. So part of that is sometimes saying I'm scared. You know, I, I do not want to fight with people. You know, like, as you know, I'm going to publish an article in, in the next few days and mm. I'm scared of some yeah. of the repercussions from that. I, you know, it's putting my head above the parapet and when you do that, a few people will shoot. Yeah. But it's also, you know, what about integrity? What about ethics? What about, you know, knowing that there are different forms of truth as much as there are many forms of science, mm -hmm. but it's speaking a truth. Yeah, that's so, that's so powerful to hear. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and and that maybe that is also your answer to the next question, but um, a lot of new, newer yoga teachers listen to this podcast. And if you could give any advice to someone who is starting out as a yoga teacher right now. Like I, I know someone who um, has, is just completing their teacher training. They did the last bit of their teacher training online. Um, if you could give any advice to someone starting out as a teacher in these times, what would that be? So both you and I have studied with um, Sarah Powers, which is really lovely. I didn't realize that before. Mm. And I remember Sarah um, her advice well, at the time, this is probably, she said this maybe 10, 12 years ago, was don't give up the day job, which I thought was quite yeah. funny. Yeah. Um, I did give up the day job when I started teaching, but that yep. was 2001. I suppose the advice that I would give is take it slowly, no rush, and prioritize your own practice. So the grounding and the confidence I have gained through the regularity of my own personal practice has given me so much strength in terms of teaching. And yeah. take it slowly, please, no rush. You know, maybe just teach a class a week for several mm -hmm. years, mm -hmm. see how you're getting on. So you're kind of exercising the skills you learned on the training, but don't push it, don't jump in at the deep end and be teaching 15 or 20 classes a week and then in six months' time, pulling your hair out and weeping in a corner. You know, you mentioned burnout earlier, Cora, mm. and it is so common. And, mm. you know, let's talk about this openly. A lot yeah. of yoga teachers get burnt out. And mm -hmm. this is not just teachers who've been teaching for one or two years. I know this is true for teachers who've been teaching for more than 10 years. Yeah. They get burnt out. So what are the resources that can enable sustainability? Well, I think it's, I think it's things like you've, we've spoken about this whole episode, you know, having a teacher's council and talking about pay rates and um, looking at mentors and therapy and, and also bringing, bringing like things like pay, pay rates into the light so that people yes. know what they're getting into. If they do quit their day job, they know, you know, they I know had, the process. I had a student at one of the large, London Yoga Studios contact me after I first published that article last year saying I really didn't realize teachers were paid so little. Wow. I really didn't. And he was like, he was saying like in London, like, you know, you go to a cafe and a cappuccino is like three pounds. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, you know, I think right now 
it's important to acknowledge it's incredibly difficult for studios. Yeah. It's incredibly difficult yeah. because they've got the overheads going out. They're paying rent on empty buildings. It's incredibly difficult. But could we creatively and constructively work together? So not teachers being marginalized, but teachers being brought right into the center. And this is a point I talked earlier about down under. You know, they mm. talk about, you know, there is teacher-focused studio. Yeah. That is what I would aspire towards. That, you know, all the different elements, you know, there's the owners, there's the staff, you know, front of house, back um, of house staff, there's the teachers, there's the students. Having a discussion together. How can we make yoga teaching, yoga studios sustainable post-pandemic? That's, that is such a good um, vision to think if people are listening and they own studios or they're going back mm. into studios. Um, yeah, thank, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, before we wrap up, could you just tell people where they can find you? Like I know you've got a website where you um, blog quite a bit and you've got your Facebook page, but can you just direct people so that if they're listening to this, they can just pull out their phones or whatever if they want to look you up? So my website is imaginatively called yogawithnorman.co.uk. Um, and as Cora mentioned, I, I've written quite a number of articles, so they're up on the website. And I also have a monthly newsletter. So if you email me through the website, I can put you on that list. And through the newsletter, I advertise, you know, I teach um, yin yoga workshops. I also teach an Ashtanga class, but it's so off message these days, <laughs> particularly because it's on Zoom. I call it Ashtanga with love and with props. Um, so yeah, it's way sounds off nice. message. It sounds nice. Yeah, I love Ashtanga. I've got a huge amount of time for Ashtanga. You know, I'm deeply grateful to you know my main Ashtanga teacher for all that I learned from him. But um, yeah, feel free to come in on the website. Feel free to put your name down on the newsletter. And I've also written a book called Brightening Our Inner Skies, Yin and Yoga, uh, that came out in 2016, which I think is available around the world these days. Great. Great. Thank you so much. Um, it was great to speak with you. Thanks for coming on the show, Norman. You're welcome, Cora. Thanks for listening to another episode of Teaching Yoga. To get full transcripts and links for all of the resources we discuss in this show, get yourself on the newsletter at coragerou.com slash newsletter. That's C-O-R-A-G-E-R-O-U-X dot com slash newsletter. If you don't keep it real, then you go somewhere but here. Cause you know we're only losing control just for a minute. Oh. If you don't like this music, then don't be listening to it. You know I'm just a dude that you know or something similar. If you don't keep it real, can you go somewhere but here? Cause you know we're only losing control just for a minute. Oh. Uh-oh, 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 uh-